Lord God, in this season of waiting and of expectation, we know that there are those camped out in the convention center and on the streets of Tijuana who understand expectation and longing so much more than we do. They have spent months with children in tow, many of them, because they have a hope that burns inside of them of a life that's better than the one they have in their own home. And now they are still yet waiting for that hope to be realized. And so for the 5,632 men, women, and children in makeshift shelters and sleeping on the streets outside of the U.S. border, we ask that you would provide rest for these men and women and many children. Would you be their good shepherd? Would you provide for them their daily bread, their daily shelter, their daily shower, their daily allotment of food and diapers and friends and conversation? Would you deliver them from fear, Lord? Would you grant them favor among those who are hosting them, some of them unwillingly? Would you grant them protection and safety? There are so many layers of tension, so many places for stress and division, and we pray that you would bring peace. We pray that you would put an end to suffering everywhere it is found in these relationships. We pray that you would answer prayers, their prayers of hope, prayers of life, prayers for a better future, prayers for safety. And Lord, we think of our friend Liliana and all those like her, pastors, lawyers, social workers, people who are working alongside of and employed by charities and interfaith organizations, people who are opening their homes and their workplaces, opening their churches, opening their time and hearts to strangers in need both on the U.S. and on the Mexico side. We pray for these, our brothers and sisters, that you would provide wisdom, that you would grant creativity, that they would not be overwhelmed by the enormity of this crisis, the hundreds of asylum seekers coming to their door every day, or the thousands who are waiting and camped out in Tijuana. Lord, would you give them eyes to see as you do, and would you empower them by your love? Would you grant energy? Would you rise up your church and pour out your love on those who need it most? We pray specifically for our people of our tribe in the Church of the Nazarene. We pray for those who are at work in the Nazarene Border Initiative and for Nazarene Compassionate Ministries in Mexico who is working diligently to provide for all those who are 
staying in Tijuana at this time. And we pray for Liliana Reza and for each of the Point Loma uh, Nazarene University students and staff members who are engaged. We pray for all of the churches in the San Diego area who are giving of their time and resources and even their buildings. Lord, we know that this is just one of many humanitarian crises in our midst today. But for this one, we pray together now and we ask that your presence would be known and that hope would come bursting forth, not because of anything that any humans do, but because of the power of your spirit. We ask this in confidence because we know that this is not only something that we want, we know this is what you want. And in all of this, we pray, as Jesus has taught us, would your kingdom come and would your will be done even along the U.S.-Mexico border as it is in heaven. And we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to greet you in the strong and powerful name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is capable of ushering in the peace that we ask for. My name is Chris, and I get to be one of the pastors here, and it is a privilege for me to be in worship with you. I want to invite you to open up uh, your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, verse, uh, chapter 21, starting with verse 25. And if you don't have a Bible, we have friends who have Bibles and you can just raise your hand and somebody will bring you a Bible. If you speak Spanish, that is your heart language. We have some Spanish Bibles, or if you're practicing Spanish, we invite you to take one of our Spanish Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, this is yours to keep. If you just need it for the evening, uh, just leave it on the chair, and then, uh, and then somebody will pick it up at the end of our service. But together we are going to read Luke chapter 21, starting with verse 25, going through verse 36. And here at our church, uh, we stand in order to honor the reading of God's Word, so I invite you to do that right now. So, hear the word of the Lord from the Gospel of Luke on this first Sunday in the season of Advent. And there will be strange signs in the sun, moon, and stars. And here on earth, the nations will be in turmoil, perplexed by the roaring seas and the strange tides. People will be terrified at what they see coming upon the earth, for the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then everyone will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud with power and great glory. So when all these things begin to happen, stand up and look up, for your salvation is near. Then he gave them this illustration. Notice the fig tree or any other tree. When the leaves come out, you'll know without being told that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things taking place you can know that the kingdom of God is near. I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass from the scene until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. Watch out. Do not let your hearts be dulled by carousing and drunkenness and by the worries of this life. Don't let that day catch you unaware like a trap. For that day will come upon everyone living on the earth. Keep alert at all times. And pray that you might be strong enough to escape these coming horrors and stand before the Son of Man. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we say together, thanks be to God. You may be seated. So the apostles in their creed said this, 
I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his own, Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, was born of the Virgin Mary, the one who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He then descended to the dead, they said, and on the third day he rose again and he ascended into heaven and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And then they say this, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. This is the confession of the first century Christians. They said that Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. And this text that we read in Luke is quite a text. It's brought to us by our friends of the Revised Common Lectionary, and it is the gospel reading for the first Sunday, first week, the first Sunday of Advent. And oh, what a text it is. Now, while most of us in the West started the season of Christmas the day after Thanksgiving, the Christian church around the world holds tightly to the season of Advent the four weeks leading up to Christmas Day. So here we are, and I don't know if you know this, but today, as a church, this is our third anniversary. Our first Sunday as a church was on the first Sunday of Advent in 2015. So today, we're celebrating our third birthday on the first Sunday of Advent. So here we are on our our third anniversary, the first Sunday of Advent, And the very first text we're assigned to read by the Revised Common Lectionary on this Sunday is not about the birth of a baby, which would make a lot of sense, right? Something new. It's not a story of peace or joy or shepherds or angels or gifts or mangers. That is the kind of story that you want to talk about on your birthday. This is an unsettling text, a text that can be downright scary. Now, Luke calls this text, this part of the Bible, he calls this text the, uh, the Lucan Apocalypse. It's what, in what is supposed to be the most wonderful time of the year, the Revised Common Lectionary hands us this text. It hands us apocalyptic literature on the very first Sunday. Instead of birthday stuff, it is rock your world stuff. It's not exactly, when we read this text, it's not exactly Silent Night, Holy Night. Now, as I studied this text, a song came to my mind. And it was, it's an Advent song. It's one that we sing, or at least all of the department stores and restaurants that you've been sitting in for the last few weeks have been, have been playing. It's one that you hear every year, one that you will know and one that you will recognize. And you might not have ever known that this was an Advent text, and you may not have never known that you were listening to something apocalyptic. But you, you have been. It is from 1943, so I want you to listen to part of this song. The year was 1943. It was the number one song, and it was the song that was sung by soldiers in World War II. Bing Crosby sang this song, and the whole world... There during that war, along with the sun and the moon and the stars and the earth and the sea, were in panic as all hell was breaking loose. This song tears at the heartstrings when you think about those who sang it. 
when you think about those who are longing for home, it tears at the heartstrings. You can imagine it, and you can imagine this text doing the exact same thing because there are people who are longing for home. You can be empathetic, for, you can be empathetic with that. It, it's a longing. A longing for home is a longing for a world that, that is different than what it actually is. This is an Advent song, and I think that those men and women, those soldiers during World War II were looking into the sky, and they were seeing bombs and rockets, red glare, and they perhaps, in a moment of longing, wondered if the sun and the moon and the stars were going to collapse on them because certainly the nations were being shaken. That was 1943. Well, first century A.D., those who read this text in the first century for the first time were dealing with their own geopolitical crisis. Rome was the greatest superpower in the world, and it made all ki- they made all kinds of promises. Rome said it would bring peace, and, and it would bring rain, peace would reign through the land. But instead, what the people experienced was violence and warfare, and conflict dominated as did agreed for power. Each Caesar seemed to be more greedy than the last one and more vicious than the one that came before. So after Nero's death in A.D. 68, four emperors followed in quick succession, each the head of a vast army, and the Roman Roman peace that Augustus, Caesar Augustus that we read about in Luke chapter 2, and his successors claimed to have brought to the world was was shattering from the inside. For those who read this text for the first time, it must have been an an apocalyptic experience. And I am sure that they understood this text, and they would understand Advent better than we would, because they are being stuck in this exile-like state where there is a longing for home, a longing for Christmas to happen, a longing for God to show up. We say it this way around here. Mikhail just said it a few minutes ago. We long for God to show up for something redemptive and hopeful to break in, not in the way in which we desire or the way in which we expect, but in the way in which we all need. I'm sure that this is what they were thinking. And this can be a tough text to understand unless your world is breaking loose. And for many, the holidays are not the most wonderful time of the year. In fact, they're the worst so maybe, just maybe, for those who, are, those who are not looking forward to the sentiment of Christmas, or those who don't have a family or a place to go, those who don't have any money or who are in jail, or who have cancer or who are looking for asylum, or those who are sad because of a breakup or a lost job, or have spent the night in a homeless shelter, or won't celebrate with their spouse this year because of a death or a divorce, And I say this because these are the stories of some of the people that I have encountered this week. Maybe for those who are in these situations, this text is good news. Dietrich Bonhoeffer understood this text. Bonhoeffer was the great Christian martyr who spoke out against Hitler's fascism, but he also spoke out against a compromising and impotent church. And he was imprisoned during the war and eventually was hanged only three weeks before the Allies invaded. In December 1943, the same year that I'll Be Home for Christmas was the number one song in the West, Bonhoeffer was in Teagle Prison as a political prisoner, and he wrote these words to his best friends, to his best friend. Life in a prison cell may very well be compared to Advent. One waits, 
hopes, does this, that, the other things, things that are really of of no consequence, and the door is shut, and it can only be opened from the outside. The door is shut and can only be opened from the outside. That is what Advent helps us to face. It helps us to face a world by which we are powerless. It it helps us to be honest about a world that ushers in circumstances that seem way out of our control. And, And it's also what makes me appreciate Jesus in this text. He doesn't seem to pull any punches. He certainly isn't the cute little baby that we have in Luke chapter 2. He is about as real as it gets. He's candid and honest, and he speaks the truth of what it's like to live in the middle of of the space between two worlds. The one that proclaims that a Savior has come and been born to us this day, and the one that we hope will come because we need him to come. I've tried to see this text through the eyes of some of the friends that I have encountered this week. On Wednesday, I sat at the county jail with a friend, only 19 years old, that I've known, and I've known him for many years since he was a little boy. He's committed a terrible crime, and he's sorry, and he's guilty, and he's sad. And he looked at me like the little boy that I knew him, and he said to me, I just, I just want to go home. And as I talked with him, I reminded him that he lives in the in-between. He lives in this world where he has a label, criminal, and he lives in a world that I've been invited to bring to him, and it comes with a new label. You are my friend. Time in jail is about pressure and waiting. It's Advent. Friday, I went to visit an older gentleman in the hospital that I have known for a long time. Four days ago, he found out he had liver and pancreatic cancer, and the outlook is bleak. And when I walked in, he said to me, what are you doing here? And I said, Jim, when my family members get sick, I show up. He lives in the in-between. He lives in this space of life and love and family and, and a world that he is now embarking on, a world of sickness and disease and death. And you know what he told me? He was ready to go home. Time in a hospital with sickness is about pressure and waiting. It's Advent. Advent is the season where we stand in the, in the in-between of the already good work of God that has been accomplished and some of us talk about often and the, yet, and the not yet fully realized work of God that is still to be accomplished. Advent is like living in the tension of, of faith and doubt, belief and disbelief, optimism and pessimism, experiencing something very real and tangible and wonderful and and then sitting and wondering if anything in this world is really that good at all. Advent is this space in between, this span of time, this holding pattern that we find ourselves in, almost like we're dancing in between two songs, where we have sung and experienced joy to the world as Christ has entered the world, but we haven't experienced that joy fully because we are waiting for God to complete God's remaking of the world and bringing our redemption to fulfillment. So on this side, we sing with earnestness and with guts, O come, O come, Emmanuel. We sit in between these two songs. Like it or not, this is the space that is Advent. It's the space as well that Luke concerns himself with. It's the space that Jesus is very honest about. 
The Bible has a word for that space. It's called exile. 1943, Germany. Exile. Soldiers who sang. Exile. A saint who wrote. Exile. A prisoner who was sorry. Exile. A patient who could praise. Exile. They show us what exiled people do. They long for home. I don't think it's a coincidence that the Hallmark card designers link Christmas themes with pictures of home. Because in home, there's a sense of the familiar. There's a sense that everything is being made right. There's a sense of security. Home is a place where you find belonging. Family and friends gather in homes. Stories are told in homes. Children are raised in homes. Culture is even crafted in homes. As Anne Lamont says, home is where when you knock on the door, they have to let you in. And, and the Lucan apocalypse is the reminder that we are in this space that comes before home. We are in this space that, that happens before Christmas. And in the space, we do not just sing songs of a Christ who came, but we also sing songs of a Christ who is coming, one who will, who will complete his redemptive work in us and who will complete his redemptive work in the world. Like the soldier who sings, I'll be home for Christmas. Home, as of now, feels like it's just in my dreams. Jesus is sensitive to this, and he knows that if we're in exile too long, that our dreams for home have a tendency to disappear. So he says, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down. Be on the watch. Don't stop dreaming about this home. And Advent reminds us of the realities of this life. It reminds us that we are aliens and strangers, that we are foreigners, that we reside in an apocalypse. Advent, unlike Christmas with its lights and its festivities and its stocking feet and its warm fires, actually is cloaked a little bit in darkness. Last week when we were getting out all of our Advent Christmas decorations, my son Watson said, oh man, it's Advent. I hate Advent. <laughs> I think, I think there are days when I agree with him. Advent uh, reveals the painful reality that we long for in Christmas. It, it reveals that we long for home and we are in need of the coming of our Lord. And this text is for all whose lives are apocalyptic that have a need for Christmas but find themselves in Advent. Jesus never denies this space. He's never quick to erase that space from us. In fact, he promises, uh, he promises that it's here and he invites us to stare at it, to look at it, to investigate it, to examine it, to be honest about this space. And this is something that Bonhoeffer understood. While in prison, Bonhoeffer wrote to his fiancée, uh, Maria von Wedemeyer, and he, and he said this. Look at what he said. He is in prison in December of 43, and he says, Be brave for my sake, dearest Maria. Even if this letter is your only token of my love this Christmas tide, we shall both experience a few dark hours. Why should we disguise the fact of that from each other? So let us ponder the incomprehensibility of our lot and be assailed by the question of why, over and above the darkness already enshrouding humanity, we should be subjected to the bitter anguish of a separation whose purpose 
we fail to understand. In other words, he's saying, we do not understand our situation or our separation, but let's face the facts. It's horrible. These two lovers face their situation with honesty. But it was only when they were honest about their situation that they were able to realize that hidden within the space, hidden in the in-between was good news because the letter didn't end there. In fact, Bonhoeffer says to her, while we are being honest about what we've got, just then, just when everything is bearing down on us to such an extent that we can hardly withstand it, the Christian message comes to tell us that our ideas about the way the world is are all wrong. And we take to, what we take to be evil and dark is really good and light because it comes from God. We realize that as we investigate this, that our eyes are at fault, that's all. God is in the manger, wealth and poverty, light and darkness, assistance and abandonment. No evil can befall us, Maria. Whatever men may do to us, they cannot, they cannot but serve the God who is secretly revealed as love and rules the world and our lives. I just imagine that Bonhoeffer is there in that prison and he's passionately writing this letter and essentially he's saying, Christmas will come soon and things will not be as they appear. These words sound very much like Jesus in this passage in Luke. Jesus uses words like anguish and perplexity, the tossing of the sea, apprehension, horrors, heavenly bodies being shaken, heaven and earth will pass away. But then he says something else. He says, and when that happens, that's when you'll know. You'll know then that your redemption is drawing near. It's like Jesus says, there, my friends, in that in-between space, Look for it because there's a new God reality, which should say to us in the middle of all of this, the bad stuff, the world groaning, the nations at war, the jail cell, the cancer diagnosis, the apocalypse, it says that in that, Jesus says, we are invited to anticipate that something is going to change. Our redemption is near. You know what Jesus does? He calls his followers who are in this interesting Advent-like space, who are in this space but who are longing for home, longing for something different, to look around and to notice the signs that Christmas is coming. Look around and, and notice that your longing for home is being realized. Pastor McHale pointed something out to me this week that I thought was really interesting. She said that when she read this text... She thought that Jesus was going to say, when the world looks like it's coming apart, duck and cover. But she said she was surprised that, that Jesus' words were, when the world is coming apart, stand up. Get on your feet. Lift up your head. Get ready. Pay attention. Take notice. Winter is almost over. Summer is coming. The trees will soon begin to bloom. God's redemptive work is coming, which makes sense because, because the scholars who call this the Lucan apocalypse insist that apocalypse has two meanings. It means that the world is coming apart, and that's how most of us understand it, but they also say that it means that the word apocalypse means to reveal. 
In other words, when the apostles confessed that he will come to judge the living and the dead, it was just another way to say, may God dismantle the world as it is, and may God apocalypse himself, may God reveal himself, and show the new world in the mess that we are in. In this time and in this space, we confess that in Jesus, God bursts forth through our worry and our apathy and our fear, and God is on the brink of doing something new, the redemption of our lives. And the church, the apostles, believe that Jesus was the apocalypse. He was the embodiment of the apocalypse, the one who was dismantling this world as we know it, and the one who is the apocalypse, the revelation of God for the world. And they believe that in him, the things that seemed evil and dark will be revealed to be the things that are good and light, the true things of God. When you read the whole gospel of Luke, it seems like a giant paradox. It seems like you're walking in between weird spaces because you have interesting things happening. God comes in power and glory, and you read that alongside born an infant in a manger. You read a warning to the nations. Well, you read that alongside good news of great joy. You read about destruction, death, betrayal. You read that alongside hope is here. You read about fear, and you read it alongside comfort. You read earthly tribulations and trials, and you read it alongside the good news of hope, which your redemptive is near. Bonhoeffer understood this paradox. He understood this tension. That's why he said, just before his hanging at a concentration camp, this is the end, but for me, it is the beginning of life. You know, it gives me great hope that Jesus' perspective is not my perspective. It gives me hope that we can only see what is right in front of us, but Jesus sees the world different, and he is dismantling the world as it is, and he is revealing God as God is. So friends, on this first Sunday in the season of Advent, lift up your heads because the tree is blooming. Summer is coming. He has come. Summer is near. And as the apostles have said, and we say time and time again, and we confess it in our creeds, he will come again. Would you, would you pray with me? The response, God, in this text, Jesus invites us to pray, to discern the activity of God in the world, and so we do. We lift up our heads, recognizing we live in this really strange space. We are honest with what we see and the way in which our lives are, but we are instilled with hope. And even though God is dismantling the world, God is also revealing God to the world so that the world might be redeemed. And so might we. So in our prayer, we remember and we remind ourselves that Advent is a space and a time that reminds us that we are not home, that we are actually in exile. But it also reminds us that there will be one who shows up in the most unusual way. And unlike the soldier, home is not just in our dreams, but Advent gives us hope. In Advent, we expect. In Advent, we prepare. 
Soon home is going to be our reality. Christmas is coming. He will return. He is coming and he will invade our suffering in a way we could not have anticipated. He is coming to make that which is wrong in the world right. He is coming to restore and remake broken things. No longer will we be strangers, exiles, foreigners. He is coming to find a home in us and will make a home for us. So we stand. We raise our heads in hope. We wait in prayer with anticipation and longing that the one who has come will be the one to come again. Like the apostles, we pray the prayer, Lord, come quickly. And we do so in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Each week we are reminded of this hope that we have, and we are invited to this table of our Lord because it's a, it's a constant reminder of something that's tangible, a new reality and a bold statement that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. In hope and in faith, we come to this table. So I want to remind you that on the night before Jesus was betrayed by those he came to save, at dinner he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you and whenever you eat it, I want you to remember me. Then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup represents the new covenant that comes in my blood and whenever you drink of this, I want you to do so in, in affectionate remembrance of me. St. Paul said, never stop eating and gathering. Always make yourself present and open at the table. And so, therefore, this is an open table at our church. Anyone who is open to the transforming work of God in Christ is welcome to this table. Anyone who finds themselves in an apocalypse is welcome to this table. Anybody who is in the space that we call Advent is welcome to this table. Everyone who is open to believe in the good work of Christ, that he will come again to redeem us all, is welcome to this table. Here is where we live into this tension. We follow the one who has come and the one who has come again. And we are reminded that he said to his friends when he was here, do not worry, my friends. I have overcome this world. I want to let you know that we, we want no barriers. Everyone who's welcome, who's open to this mystery of grace, so our bread is gluten-free, our wine is non-alcoholic, but I invite you to exit the left side of your row, move down one of our aisles, and come with your hands cupped, ready to receive that which is good and that which comes from God. Here we do not take communion. We receive it because we believe it is a gift. So allow one of these servers to serve you. Then dip the bread into the cup and eat it. And if for any reason you're able to, unable to come down our aisle or you need assistance, just wave at Justin and he will be glad to come and serve you. I invite you to this table, my friends, and so come when you are ready.